Welcome to our industry chat. The members of Bloodhound Picks and an occasional guest give their no BS experiences with current aspects of the industry. Hi, so this is going to be a special episode for me because the first legitimate interview I ever did was with Staten Cousins Rowe and his wife Poppy while we were talking about A Serial Killer's Guide to Life. So to have him back on is great. And we chat about a lot of kind of amazing things about the future of cinema for independent filmmakers and a ton of other wonderful topics. So listen and enjoy. Hey, Staten, thank you for joining me on this episode. A real pleasure. So I just wanted to, I guess, get started and tell everyone how you got started and what brought you to becoming a actor and then a and then a filmmaker yeah sure um so i um i uh started going i uh, started as an actor originally um i think um i was, none of my family um were filmmakers or co- were, were, were sort of connected to to the industry at all um and so growing up uh, I, I was a huge film fan um and watching movies that I really shouldn't have um, at a young age, like uh, Robocop and okay. Alien and stuff, probably at like the age of like 11 or 12 or something like that. And uh, and the emotional scars are still there. <laughs> um, you know, growing up, I had this notion of, of wanting to tell stories and I'd, I'd do the, the typical thing of, of making movies with my dad's camcorder and stuff. But I think for some reason in my mind, because it was the people I could see were the were the actors, um, and I didn't. Although I was making movies with a camcorder, I was also sort of being in them as well. And and so I, some part of me was like, oh, well, to to make movies, you you should be an actor. And so uh, and I, I connected to um, to Shakespeare uh, and and uh, um, and really started to enjoy enjoy the the rhythm of the language and everything and, and speaking out loud and being in school sort of school plays and things so i i went along that route and i went to drama school uh here in the uk and then um but i always had uh even at sort of an early age at the age of 17 or whatever this notion in mind of of producing and directing one day but i kind of pushed it along the line like like i needed to do to to, to sort of experience a lot more before i felt able to um to kind of engage on that level but while sort of simultaneously always writing alongside that always writing some bit of a screenplay or or helping a friend write a screenplay for his um screenwriting degree and and it kind of connected in with my acting you know writing some material to then perform and um and so that kind of that took me to london uh, i was born on the, the south coast so but i i my drama schools that i auditioned for and everything were in london so i moved to london and then learned acting and again there was always this sort of connection with the writing uh, and, and how the stories were made and the, the structure behind them and meanwhile I, I carried on consuming huge quantities of movies and, and um, i'm really wanting to learn at that stage kind of um screen technique from an acting perspective so i started this kind of scrapbook where i i noted down different screen techniques that i was seeing in people like robert de niro and um dustin hoffman and 
in in um, some of their great movies and, and kind of building up a, a kind of homemade textbook of what I thought these actors were doing. But it was interesting because I was doing that all through the screen, you know, yeah. all through rather, rather than necessarily the, the theatre. And I was sort of trying to break down what the difference was between the two mediums. And anyway, that that all then then I acted. Um, I came out of drama school and I, I did some television and and some uh, a lot of independent films and also theatre. And one of the films, one of the indie films that I worked, I played the lead in as an actor, which was a lovely film called Drawn. The uh, I worked with um, the producer and the director on that, two lovely guys, and we did a, a, a lot of filming um, for it, and it came together really well. But towards the end, as sometimes happens with, with indie films, uh, I think people sort of ran out of steam, and, and so this, during the editing process, you know, there was no money really left and things like that. It all kind of ground to a halt. And so I came on board as a a sort of quasi-producer to just try and push the, the whole thing through. And in doing that, we managed to I managed to, to get the film to um, into a number of things for the, the UK sort of film market and then got the film picked up by sales agent and got it sold and, and it played at the National Film Theatre in the UK. And, um, and that was one of my sort of proudest moments up to that point. It wasn't just seeing, wasn't actually seeing my face as the lead in it, but was really taking control behind the scenes and pushing the thing along and making it happen from a business side as well. And after that, I then um, I produced with, uh, with my wife, Poppy Rowe, um, a short film for the director of that, uh, of, of Drawn, and produced that. And then after that same year, I had some time because I was acting in a theatre show. So I thought perhaps it was time to, to kind of knuckle down with my own desire to direct and I went ahead and um, and wrote a short film called This Way Out uh, while I was while I was uh, doing the stage show in the evening. And then finally went ahead and and kind of put my money where my mouth was, as it were, and actually uh, directed my first film, uh, short film. And so that was kind of the the trajectory in a way, uh, at least to, to to the beginning of filmmaking for for me. And it kind of took that movement from acting uh, through. Uh, through to, to to finally being the one, oh. the one at the monitor. Yeah. No, and I, um, I mean, I've written about it, but I love this way out and talked a little bit about it before. But I know um, what I actually wanted to ask about, yes. especially since you know this podcast is out of the states, and and what always really fascinated me was because I went to drama school as well, and then. Um, film school and all that but in um, uh, yeah. the UK having there's more I think I felt like there's always been more crossover from theater to television to film where uh, a lot of times here it's like oh you just you can kind of do them all but it's like inevitably it's like you either do go to Los Angeles and do one or go to New York and do the other you can't really there's not that mix sometimes that's what it feels like when you're like coming up and I'd love to kind of hear about the yeah 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 absolutely I, I totally hear that it's really interesting the way that you mentioned you know I think in part perhaps that just from from you saying it sounds like the geographical problem of yeah. of, of the two industries in the US being on completely opposite sides of of what is a, a very large country yeah. and to flip between the two although is is possible it's it's not easy or financially viable for many 
and and whereas in the UK, London, you know, is the hub for for both, or certainly has been for for up until now. Um, having said that, it, it's there is still there are still niches that people go into, um, and so you know, inevitably, if you build up a big CV in one but have not very much in another, it's simply, I think, a practical thing of certain casting directors or industry people that work in one don't necessarily work in the other thing. Yeah. And so you tend to have to build up. But I, I, I think it's certainly much more varied than, than exactly than, than what you mentioned. I think as well, perhaps it's because, um, you know, the the history of theatre here is is what it is, and I think with drama schools, um, although they're starting to more, their their focus is still utterly and completely on theatre, on learning to act in theatre. And I think the the core is right. If you are a superb theatre actor, you will still be a, a brilliant screen actor um, if if you connect to the truth of the moment. And so. Yes, I think that I think that also with there's um, again thinking about the geographical since a lot of the studios that are, that are in the UK are still based just on the outskirts of London. Um, having said that, there is a move to try and move it more spread across the country now. But it's certainly for, from my perspective, I, I enjoyed moving between the mediums. I think. To, to learn as much as possible from a directorial point of view as well. Uh, yeah, I agree completely. So after your short film, <clears throat> then um, the process of getting, which is kind of how we first started talking about, is your your first feature, A Serial Killer's Guide to Life, which you ended up u- utilizing some of the resources from the short and some of the, the tonal stylings as well. I'd like to kind of talk about that process. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, you, you touched on a really um, valuable point there in terms of after making This Way Out, uh, which has uh, the two, same two lead actors, Poppy Rowe and, and Casey Braben, uh, doing wonderful, wonderful um, chemistry, having wonderful chemistry on screen. I then, um, I was actually, I was working on a different screenplay, which I thought might be my first feature film. And then, uh, but always in the back of my mind, I, I had in mind, I, I really wanted to try and utilize Poppy and Katie's chemistry in a longer f- uh, form than, than just the short. And uh, the, the short film's about, um, uh, This Way Out's about a struggling euthanasia center, a darkly comic film. Um, and I just felt like euthanasia um, wasn't wasn't quite the right topic to, to roll out into a longer form. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I wanted to find a different kind of, different um worlds as it were to, to 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 house those two characters in a longer form having said that i, I think i like the idea of this way out in a, in a tv version but um so then i came across the idea of, of a serial killer's guide to life the, the world of self-help um and satirizing that with with two similar not the same but similar character types for the for the two um actors um yeah and it, it, you're absolutely right it was very much about looking at the way we'd done this way out, completely homemade, as it were, you know, that was shot in our flat in London at the time. And literally, you know, our, our joint hallway was filled with camera equipment after asking the neighbours if it would be okay. And, and um, you know, we made the food in the, the night before for the cast and crew so that when they turned up, at, you know, at lunchtime, they could, they could all eat. Yeah. Um, and then looking at how well it turned out and how it went around the whole world and... and 
won awards and 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 we sold it to HBO and the Sundance Channel in Europe and things. So it was a real buzz to to think of something you make, you know, completely in your own home and and then share with the world. Yeah. So we we looked at how we could do the same thing really and and just sort of scale it up. And so we did. We we used as many people as we could from the original production this way out in in a serial killers and just kind of. Uh, try to do exactly that and scale everything up but but keeping that homegrown feeling and vibe and in doing so obviously on a practical level keeping the budget minusculely low uh, even for a for, you know for a, for a micro budget film what was the i guess the process after completing it did the the short help in finding distribution or did you have to what was the i guess the festival circuit like and in this you know we kind of the podcast itself will go a little bit into yeah the process of you know somebody trying to go through festival runs and things like that and so how was that whole process yeah no that's that's really interesting i think what this way out was interesting for was um and useful for was when we were in pre-production and just before that for, for a killer's guide we were able to send people who hadn't worked with us before the short as a way of sort of saying along with with other information as a way of saying you know this is this is what we made before that we made it in this way you know here's here's an example of calling card and that worked really well yeah. um and uh, some of the the people we brought to on board to produce the film charity wakefield and, and giles alderson along with poppy and i they were then able to use that for some of their contacts i remember charity sending it out to to various cast members or people that she knew as a way of saying look you know i know you trust me but you know look what these guys did before this is going to be really cool and so that was really helpful and i think you know from the festival perspective uh, obviously right now as we talk about it it's it's incredibly unusual and and almost impossible to predict what, yeah. what's going to happen with the festival world as, as as we're in the middle of the pandemic and and which ones will survive financially and everything yeah. like that but certainly prior to to now uh, i mean this way out ha- went to a lot of different festivals with with a serial killer's guide to life we were lucky in the sense that we we got distribution we set up distribution with the wonderful arrow films prior to its festival launch and so arrow were very instrumental in helping us plan where they felt the film should premiere and then also we were planning the release dates and so that sort of gave us a very small amount of time after its um, fright festival premiere as to where was available for it to go before it then released in the uk and then we also uh went to a fantastic fest in australia so yeah so so the festival run was was a bit different with that uh than it was with this way out with the short you know you're sort of just free to do what you want with it because it's a different kind of different distribution world as it were but i suppose i think festivals are I think it's really important. One one of the things, one of the really key things from a filmmaker perspective, we learned with the short was having a festival strategy and knowing where we wanted the film to open, why we wanted it to open there, why that festival matched the film, and ensuring that we would enter that festival ahead of another festival that if we got into might blow the premiere, the world premiere, the local premiere, the you know, you have to be really aware of using that premiere, particularly the world premiere and then your home premieres, using it very wisely. Okay. You know, if yeah. you go and, and open with a feature film in a, in one festival and then 
another one wants it and they're much bigger, but you've already used up the premier, then it may well cost you that opportunity. So, so that actually brings up a, a great little quick question that we haven't covered is the the differences between you know what necessarily would make a deem a world premiere versus a you know a home premiere. Is it a world premiere beat? There's something that is just purely out of an international film festival, or I see. Yeah, I think and uh, normally you can, and it depends on the fest uh, on the festival. The home premiere tends to be literally where your film was made. So for us, it would be the UK. Yeah. Your world premiere is generally the first time it's ever shown anywhere okay. in the world. Okay. Um, but some festivals will allow you to do a, a screen it at your home nation and still retain your kind of world premiere. It's like if we screened in the UK and then screened in the States, it, depending on the festival, it would still kind of say it was still the world premiere, you know, and then you still, after that, you've got your, you know, your North American premiere, yeah. <laughs> your, your European premiere. Um, but the safest way with the really, the, the, the top tier, the sort of tier A festivals is to try away and, and is to ensure you keep keep it so that's the very first world screening and also in terms of trying to generate buzz and distribution hype and interest you know unveiling your film in that way it's the best i mean obviously that doesn't connect connect into how you get to that into that festival (laughs) and all of that kind of stuff but um like i said it's a kind of topic that we always forget to kind of really discuss and so it's great that it finally was able to be utilized i guess to be able to talk about it um, so i'd actually like to go back it's one of my favorite topics to talk about and it's a kind of one of those tricky issues in the states because we don't we have it but not as much but both of the your the short and then a serial killer's guide to life i know you're talking about the last time we spoke on future projects having kind of this tone a little bit as well of black comedy and i think it's one of those things that yes it you know in the uk it's very well known and i love it anytime i see it but then in the states it's there's this weird it's either sometimes seen as too mean or absolutely i think there's um i think you know black comedy dark comedy it's um it's a really interest from a filmmaking and writing perspective it's a really interesting tool to use because you can investigate you know big uh, sort of intellectual things while also having fun and um and it not being dry i think that there's always been a kind of there's a, the notion of gallows humor yeah. which is definitely very inbuilt in the the British sensibility um, and the British sense of humour. But I also think it is something which most humans in some form, whatever culture, possess because it's a a defence to to try and love maybe that's uncomfortable or terrible um, at times. Um, And it's interesting because I think, you know, some of the the films when I was growing up, I I grew up watching a lot of of dark comedy, dark humour, odd things and obviously this Monty Python has a lot of very unusual comedy and but um but actually two of the films that I watched that had a big impact in that sense were American films okay. they were um uh, Hal Ashby's uh, Harold and Maud yeah. which is a very dark uh, dark sort of theme of of comedy and humor <laughs> in it um have you seen it yes it's a um it's one of my wife's favorites that Sure. Yeah, we um, watch it probably every, at least once a year. I, I know, I love the movie. It's beautiful to me. At least. 
it's a remarkable movie yeah. and it's it's brilliant and it's unsettling and uncomfortable yeah. and and touching all all at the same time and i mean i, I watched that my grand uh, my grandma i can't remember why but <laughs> used to stick that on all the time and i watched it with her uh loads um, uh, and um my grand had a really uh she was a nurse and uh, she had a, a, a fabulously dark sense of humor and the other one is of course uh, dr strangelove okay. which you know you can't get much darker than yeah. than joking about nu nuclear winter, especially at a time when it was seen as being completely possible, yeah. <laughs> perhaps likely when it was say well, um, two two American movies. They pushed the date back and released or something because of what was going on in the world, if I remember correctly, <laughs> like right after Kennedy. Uh, <laughs> I was surprised. So yeah, you you are right. It, it's um yeah, and it's interesting that so that that. That kind of comedy, I think, does exist there. But um, and and I've noticed it in recent years. You know, it's coming out, and and I think audiences are really enjoying it in all different types of genre. When you think of um, Breaking Bad, it's yeah. got some, you know, so many moments of absolutely black humour, and it's a fabulous tool yeah. because you really you can really open an audience up and make them vulnerable, and then slam it, sort of knock them between the eyes while and, and have them laughing at the same time as as reeling. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoy it as a, as a as a viewer as an audience member. I love um, watching something, whether it have a moment of it or or it be uh, you know completely satirical or, or whatever. And so yeah, and. and that's why I've enjoyed, I enjoyed using it in this way out and um, Killer's Guide, Serial Killer's Guide to Life. So I guess what I'd like to talk about, I know you, you know, especially with these last two and moving forward, you are, you created this, your own company with your wife, Poppy, who, for those of you that are listening that haven't seen the Serial Killer's Guide to Life, she's amazing in it and yeah, I will rave all day about it work <laughs> but um so what's that like in the process of creating that company and then having that kind of partnership and both professional and personal yeah <laughs> yeah it's um it's been great i mean we uh we edited the film together as well which is obviously a very um intimate process as well and uh it works it's it's really enjoyable i mean without sound, sounding too corny or whatever it's it's great because i it means I get to spend a lot of time, you know, working with 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 uh, one of my best friends as well. Um, and also, there's a sort of trust element there where you you really learn each other's strengths and weaknesses creatively. And we have two children, so in a way, it's fairly easy to to switch off when we're not working because because we're dealing with the chaos of yeah. family life. Uh, <laughs> and you know, another way, it's like both of us clamour to be the one you know that's uh, that's dealing with the creative or the business elements because it's <laughs> if you have if anyone with a young family is listening they'll know it's it's anything else is is a kind of rest <laughs> any kind of work is a kind of rest yeah. so um it's um it's been great i mean it was kind of typified by the fact that um when the film uh Killer's guide to life premiered at its festival premiere world premiere we Poppy was heavily pregnant with our second child, and he um, he actually was born. Uh, he he was born a few hours before the premiere, so she ended up having to miss it. Um, and so I I literally left the hospital and went straight to the 
to the Leicester Square in London for the, for the, pre- the Fight Fest premiere. And, and there was no other way of sort of like seeing how, how closely connected we yeah. both were with the film was, and my family being that, that, that he was born pretty much, you know, just a few hours before. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's fun. And we've recently started a great scheme in the UK. It's called uh, the British Independent Film Awards. And they, they um, we've just started with them. They've, they've, they've selected us as a number of people for a thing called Biffa Springboard, which is to help um, uh, give advice and things and, and sort of mentorship with diff- different, more experienced parts of the industry for our second or third film. Um, and so that, that's nice because Poppy could go to some, thank you, Poppy could go to, on something like that or, um, and, and, or I can. And, and and we can chat about it at home, sort of in, over dinner, and so you get this very, you know, it, it means that it means things can continue um, all the time. Whereas with a normal business partner or whatever, you you know, you obviously you obviously uh, can't have that level of flexibility of communication. And so with your um, forward motion picture, I think, well, especially for I guess even talking about the the horror industry for a second, even though since we'll kind of delve into that with this podcast, you know, there's been a lot of, in the you know, film industry in general, there's been a lot of talk about inclusion. And I know part of your mission statement is really making sure that you have, you know, uh, that it's not just all men on cast, and that, you know, you have a lot of women involved in, like, really bringing inclusion into, like, all of your productions. Yeah, it was something that, that, that came about very early on, actually, a, a long time before before the kind of international, um, which we're very uh, happy to, yeah. that this has happened, but, but before it was sort of something that was really spoken about all the way back with This Way Out and things. Um, and it was really just, it was mostly to do with, it was something I noticed as an actor at the time was just... It seemed odd that there would, at that time, and, and it's changed an awful lot already, at that time be so many, it was just literally guys in every single role, yeah. uh, other than a couple of the stereotypical ones. Um, and we came back, you know, 15 years or so now. And what it meant was it was an odd kind of atmosphere. It wasn't, um, uh, it wasn't perhaps as open an atmosphere. And, I went to a boys' school uh, growing up, and and there's certain was a certain atmosphere, and it was just you know all lads. That um, it was fine, and and uh, but it wasn't necessarily uh, conducive to to the most open environment. Yeah. And obviously, that's talking in a very stereotypical way, but it just seemed to make sense from a story perspective, and to have a balanced notion of ideas coming in from people. I like to have the thought that everyone on set can have a thought about anything and an idea about something. And so it was, we worked to just try and have the best people at all times, um, and, and a range of, of people from with different perspectives. Um, yeah. And so, and, and, and that's started with this way out and, and, carried on with a serial killer's guide to life and will carry on in the future wonderful and i guess that goes into a great discussion about the 2020 pandemic that we're facing and how it's kind of shaping the industry so how do you think personally your own work and your own company moving forward but also the industry as a whole is going to move forward and is there ever really going to be i guess backtracking to the how it was prior are we just kind of at this point of no return yeah no yeah absolutely i think it's one of those things where i've always 
like to, to try and think ahead about what trends were coming and whether that be story-wise or, or um, whatever. And it's it's if there was ever a point where it was a state of flux was the phrase, it's now, you know, to state the obvious. I think for my two pence worth um, is that, that I think when change happens and people, like you just said about people recognising that they can they can be in different places and use Zoom and, uh, or, or Skype or whatever, um, work from home, it's easy and it works and it has a purpose and, and a value. I think things don't often go backwards, you know, yeah. once once people have evolved to, to, to change. Um, and so from that point of view, I think what a lot of the changes that happen probably won't go backwards, partially, partly because perhaps some of the businesses that were there won't be. I think the notion of cinema is um, certainly, until there's a vaccine, um, is, is going to be uh, obviously tough. And also the notion of, of smaller films playing in cinemas, unless there's a content problem, unless there's not enough content coming through, I can I, I sort of see a time where it literally is, and it, this was already happening, it literally is only really the massive $100, $200 million spectacles that are in the cinema. And perhaps the demographics that they're aimed at as well, perhaps those demographics that, that it was already working for, but the younger ones who feel less concern or less fear about catching COVID. I certainly in the UK, just before the pandemic, there was a there was a really one of the big growing sectors going to the cinema was what was called the the, the grey market, the older generation. Yeah. There was really was a lot of them, and and I I'm not certain. That for a long time, those that that growing sector, I think, is probably gone. I think that was fueling a lot of the smaller art house cinemas, um, and that's tricky. But I don't know. What, I mean, what's your what's, what do you think is going to happen? I think I kind of agree with. I talked to uh, recently in a prior interview months ago when it was first kind of happening. That as a screenwriter, and he said the same <clears throat> thing for the states at least that when um, we had the writer strike. That was kind of what, yeah, yeah. what they were seeing, not the pandemic, but seeing, oh, with the inter- this you know, thing, the internet growing, it's going to kind of be going this way, so we need to find a way to... These companies, you know, we're trying to hold on to, I guess, that old way of life. But no, I think it is really going to be theater will be, as you were mentioning, the 200000 $300,000 or million dollar movies and um, like an a, a event film. You know, you have your Marvel, your whatever yeah. else, and then um, everything else seems like it's going online. Or even, I know some companies have even talked about how they they found it more profitable doing the theatrical release on video on demand. You pay, I think, here, yeah. over here, it's you pay twenty dollars and you get the movie for forty eight hours or something like that. Oh uh, yeah. Like the Invisible Man and, yeah. and Hunt and, and things did. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think um and, and maybe as and when and if there's a vaccine and things and, yeah. and perhaps there'll be a huge pent up demand to go back to the theatre to go to those places. But in a way, I think as an industry, you kind of have to plan for what the reality is now and and work towards that because 
it's sort of open-ended right now. You know, there's hope. Yeah. But you have to plan to what's happening now. And I think that's really tough because a lot of, you know, the cinema market is not just the theatrical market. is not just there to know how a film does then, but it also, that value, what it does at a box office, translates to what the film is sold the price that the film is sold for when it goes to the television markets, the ancillary yeah. markets. And so sometimes if a smaller film would be opened on a theatrical base uh, to help raise its value, or a lot of the time to raise its value further down the, the, the distribution chain. And so you have this disruption where then, you know, how, how do you qualify that your film has a higher value for when you sell it to international TV and the yeah. other rights and things, which although sound complex or perhaps convoluted, they really matter to the yeah. filmmaker because if you can't show the value of your film, you can't raise the budget of your film and you can't make your film. No, that's a great discussion. I know that's been, especially over here, there's been that issue with the middle class of filmmaking basically being obsolete, where it's, you know, you have your either tentpole movies or you have these films that they're... You know, wanting to shoot for less than ten million, or even you know, lesser than that. There's really no middle ground anymore. Yeah, I, I would say less than a million yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> I think ten millions now, sort of seen as fairly sizable. You know, budget in terms of the, like you said, as soon as you're outside the tentpole movies, you the budget is, is uh, drops yeah. hugely. For a long time, that's how that middle. What, the middle film range was kind of how people made their ends meet, I guess. And so now what happens is kind of the, yeah. <laughs> the big question. Yeah, and it's, it's a shame for actors as yeah. well. I mean, there's a lot of actors who I just, I, I've noticed that I, haven't, I don't see in movies anymore, um, or very rarely, because those middle films were where stars were made yeah. and huge careers were built. And it, without them, those actors don't become the names that they would have become and so the whole value system because it used to be that you use you know you use the names to help raise the budget of the, yeah. of the film that that value chain for for, for proving value of uh, of the movie um starts to break down yeah. and it's why you know along with the fact that that i think the value of films has dropped massively yeah. without sounding too downbeat you know because of streamers and things and people are less inclined to pay for a film now they want to wait until it's on Netflix. So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's a very, along with the pandemic and everything, I think it's that thing where these are all trends that were happening, but, but the, the, the pandemic, I think, you know, has just sped it up yeah. um, quite, uh, quite dramatically. And so it's going to take real innovation. I'm one that I always feel that when there's change happens, there's always opportunity. Yeah. But, um, but it's just going to take a bit of thinking to, to work out what that opportunity is. Yeah, no, I I agree completely, and I think because I know who's it, um, Poppy, she was just in a as a theatrical. I forgot how it was phrased now off the top of my head, but where they um, yeah. got it on Zoom, and they but it was a period piece. It wasn't just like some you know a Zoom horror movie. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was a um, a play of um, of a best uh, best selling novel yeah. um, by Sebastian Fawkes called Birdsong. Um, which was set in the Somme, the, uh, the, the the First World War battle. Yeah, and that was wonderfully innovative um, and worked brilliantly and and got, you know, over here in the UK, got coverage from all of the um, the large newspapers and, and, and um, large media coverage and five-star reviews. And um, I have to say, it was a truly remarkable piece of work. I watched it and was 
was blown away by um, by what was created. And that kind of innovation is exactly it. Like, like you said, that's, you know, making things is yeah. what creatives do best. And hopefully people can make things with this. Yeah, you know, it may sound like a downer, but I think, you know, I, I agree completely that there's also this, there's this positive kind of element of it. That, I don't know, there's this hope for what can be accomplished with the future and I think um, it also you know people have talked about it bringing it giving other people a voice that normally wouldn't in the the older industry yes yeah and in the, perhaps in the older model you could see how to, there was there was still a there was a there was a value chain there which I think is breaking down and so in terms of sustainable careers you know I think it's tougher perhaps now than it than it ever has been to know how to um build a career and and which is ironic really because more more films are being made but there although there's sort of the vod which can handle as many films as ever were made the channels aren't there to direct people to them so yeah. you know you have huge a quantity with hardly anyone looking at any of it yeah. apart from these big tempo things so um yeah it's i think from from the point of view of filmmaking it, it's got to be the same as ever, which is, you know, really focus on making a brilliant story. And I think that's the that's the key is is if you make something truly um, gripping and moving and wonderful and touching, it will rise to uh, to the top along with some some sound business yeah. thinking behind it as well. Is there anything <laughs> that you are working on currently or still through all this? I know that last time we spoke. You were both writing, finally, kind of writing together a uh, feature. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. So yeah, so we're we're, we're um, because there's this kind of hiatus at the moment in terms of obviously being able to to make things, and it's yeah. it's hard to know when. Certainly, with long format, when that will um, be possible again in terms of you know practical things like insurance and stuff. I know commercials and things are starting, so they're a bit bit uh, bit shorter and stuff, but. Um, and the very large stuff's able to finance what's what's involved, but yeah, so we, we uh, that project's coming along really well actually. We're we're really excited about that, mm-hmm. and then we're also so simultaneously we've got you know, carrying which we're writing together, and we're sort of thinking you know could rather than be my next film could even be Poppy's first directorial feature, which would be really exciting. Yeah. We're in two minds at the moment, and, and, and that I'd produce. Uh, and she directs on that. And also, uh, we're um, uh, developing a, a TV version of a serial killer's guide to life, which we're really excited about. Yeah, so that would be that would be really cool. And we're also, um, I'm also working on a, a, another script as well, uh, a darkly comic sort of satirical horror, which you know, I'm, I'm, I think it's important these days to be able to be flexible with your ideas and stuff. And I like to just find the world. So at the moment, it's a feature film, but I, I could also see that working as a TV series as well. So yeah, no, that's I know this is kind of how a lot of people have gone lately. Is even for myself, I think there's certain ideas creatively that started off as a feature that have now even found themselves in a. It went to like a web series, a television series, then a web series, then like. Uh, well, it'd be fun to just do a yeah. little short, and yeah, it's definitely <laughs> trying to map that all out now. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I'm excited to see what both of you bring next, and actually, because we, is there any, we've 
talked about a few movies, but always like to encourage people to you know go see a, some piece of obscure cinema or independent cinema. And so, is there any kind of obscure movie that you always champion that you'd like to, I guess, give a recommendation for? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's a great question. Well, there's, there's my film, Serial Killer's Guide to Life, which um, which you can get on, <laughs> which you can watch on Amazon Amazon uh, Video and uh, iTunes, um, uh, etc. And uh, I'd love to hear what people think of that. Yeah, I, um, I, also. I think I was thinking about this when you. Oh no! I was just saying I purchased Sorry. it on Amazon, and yeah, it's rewatched it. My wife loves it too, <laughs> and yeah, and she's not a big oh. horror fan, or, you know. But uh, I think there's enough of like the British black comedy and all that that she really loves. It. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, mate. No thanks. And I think actually it's really important. Um, yeah. That's uh, is that we. I think I think what people don't realize, like, is how important it is that we all buy um even if it's to pay to rent or or own independent and small films because it it, like you but you buying it that makes such a massive difference um because the numbers these days of people actually doing that are are really tiny compared to how they were and unless we do all go and and pay to rent and, and pay to to download films um they, you know, they, they really won't. Our favorite film, new filmmakers, really won't be able to make uh, another film. Exactly. Or when they do, it will it will be ridiculously small. And we all want to work it. You know, we're talking on the podcast with people that want to make films. They want to be. You know, there won't be much of an industry left if to to work in if if we don't all support it, especially during the time like this with the pandemic. So, yeah. So thank you for that. I really appreciate you uh, you doing that. Um, and I think, um, yeah, in the sort of small films that I champion. Well, I know if, if there's a, f- a friend of mine, an actor friend, who, who I haven't seen the film yet, but it's just coming out. I don't know if it's in the US. I think it certainly will be coming out in the US. It's coming out on iTunes and things, and that's called Around the Sun, okay. which looks really cool. But then there's this really obscure one, because I saw you, you were going to ask me this question, and I saw, and this is like, I don't even know if you'll be able to get this. Right. I, I anymore but it's called robin redbreasts okay and it was it was originally in about 19 i think 1970 in the uk on what on the bbc did what they call play for today and it's this really brilliant little folk horror um and it's uh it's a remarkable little film um you can't believe that it was made on such a tiny budget for british television back in the day um and that if you like horror is, and, and um and folk horror uh it's a it's a real find robin redbreast okay. um yeah okay. yeah i'll definitely search them out and try to <laughs> see if i can find them <laughs> Have you seen that? Have you seen Robin Robin Redbreast? No, I ha- no, I haven't. I feel like I've heard the name. For you're some you're a massive but... horror fan, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think I've heard the name. I for some reason it sounds familiar, but I have not watched it. There's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You def- definitely check it out. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. And yeah, and of course, um, yeah, it's been so much a pleasure to be able to talk to you again. And if do you have how can people kind of find you or on social media or your company or yeah. yeah, if anyone has, yeah, exactly. If anyone has questions and things about filmmaking for, for what it's worth for, what for, you know, everyone's an expert these days and I don't profess to be an expert, but, uh, but having made a feature film and, and had it just 
distributed across the world and stuff and all that stuff um please do get in touch ask questions on twitter and things and so i'm on twitter at, at staten cr and poppy is at poppy row roe um uh, or at fm pictures or at the killer's guide um any of those uh, and, and and follow us and we'll follow you back and um and uh, i think we're on instagram as well and yeah um the the website for a serial killer's guide to life is a serial killer's guide to life.com and there's lots of links and stuff on there and um and ways to watch the movie and i mean it'd be great you know if people watch the movie and then ask any questions about how it was made or from their point of view as filmmakers i think the film from a filmmaker's perspective from from an up-and-coming filmmaker's perspective is a really interesting thing to watch because the way we made it i feel is is a way that anybody could make a feature film you know we we used locations that were were um, although it was 28 locations in in 10 days we shot the film i think anyone could do it we, we you know the way we we made it happen so so yeah um I, i'd be really interested to hear what what fellow filmmakers think of it and, and any questions that any of anyone has yeah and i would um kind of even I guess piggyback off of that, of that, you know, what can really show a film's worth is that, like, if it's a, if it's, you know, low budget or independent, is that it plays, you know, as a higher budget filmer, and I think you were able to accomplish that with a serial killer's guide to life, where it doesn't. Oh, thanks, at, at no point it feels like the budget or independent aspect or any of that stuff ever, you know, hinders it. Which I think is wonderful. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Really, really appreciate it. No problem at all. Yeah. So, yeah, and I guess, yeah, thank you for chatting with me and, you know, talking a lot about kind of the yeah. schematics and everything. It's been a real pleasure. Anytime. Real pleasure. Always, always good to talk. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode with Staten Cousins Rowe. He wanted me to add on afterwards that for any filmmakers listening that would be interested in the process behind A Serial Killer's Guide to Life, the iTunes version has a 50-minute making-of documentary associated with the film. Bloodhound Picks podcast is produced by Josh Lee, Craig Dram, and Kyle Hintz. Music by Raymond Seed. Audio editing by Kyle Hintz.